Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time. We knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on PressBox Access. They say everything is bigger in Texas. Well, that's not true when it comes to the ego of Wendell Barnhouse. He likes to describe himself as a craftsman, not an artist. Whatever the writing style, there's no doubt about this. Wendell's peers had a ton of respect for him when the Texan was covering college football and basketball for many moons. I know I did. If it was a big game, you could find Wendell. 26 Final Fours, 343 NCAA tournament games, 14 college football national championship games. Wendell was always there, and he was forever on top of things, locally and nationally. That means Wendell has some stories, and you're going to enjoy hearing them. Wendell, it's a pleasure to have you join us. Great to be here. Todd, good to connect again. You know that uh, as the years go by and retirements hit and we fail to meet in press boxes, you lose track of people. And uh, that was one of the highlights of the job, as you well know, was uh, reconnecting with guys uh, every weekend at a game or whatever. So good to see you. It's uh, one thing I must point out, though, Wendell, you're a little bit older than me, just a little bit. Now, yeah, sources yeah. tell me that back in the day when you first started, you actually used a typewriter. <laughs> well, that's because that's what was there. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. And, and actually, like right when I started out of high school, my first newspaper stories I would write out by hand wow and then and then type them up and take them to the paper uh, and you know that was that was really old school but yeah until I uh, I had been in the business for I guess about yeah, about five years when I finally I got a, a job in Tucson Arizona at the Arizona Daily Star they had computers and uh, that was the first time I worked on a computer before that everything I you know did so, typed up all my stories on a on a typewriter. So they did not have computers at the Bedrock Gazette. <laughs> no, no, no. And my and my car was powered yeah. by my feet. Fred, Barney, then. and yeah. Wendell were all uh, left but, left to their own yeah, devices. That's right. That's right. Yeah, Barney <laughs> was a great source. <laughs> well, you did discover computer technology, and you certainly later found a calling in covering national college basketball and football, and did so as well as anyone for twenty five years at the Fort Worth Star Telegram. Uh, that's how we got to know each other. Um, I want to go back to those typewriter days just for a moment. So it's 1974. You're in Hannibal, yep. Missouri, hometown of Mark Twain, yeah, by no the way. no pressure there. No pressure. At the Hannibal Courier Post, you're the sports editor, a one-man staff, right? Yep, yep. When I, uh, the job at Hannibal came open. The other candidate was a college graduate who had tragically lost an arm in a car accident. So they hired me over a one-armed sports writer. Wow. 
Uh, and uh, I was 19 when I was first hired. But yeah, it was a little afternoon paper, Animal, Missouri. Um, uh, you know, and I was sports editor. They gave me a three-month probation, and then they hired me. Uh, actually, I guess three months. Had, that's it. I had like 30 uh, years of probation. Well, the, uh, yeah, I guess they they gave it to me a little quicker than three months. But yeah, I mean, I was 19. I hadn't been to college, and so I don't blame them for uh, waiting. But uh, right around my 20th birthday, I got the job, and. You know, so it was it was interesting, but uh, you know, I mean, uh, Hannibal wasn't uh, you know at the age of nineteen, <laughs> there wasn't anything going on in Hannibal, and I don't think we even had a fast food restaurant, which at that time was my breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so it was kind of hard to eat. So there's nothing going on, but this kid who wanted to play shortstop for the St. Louis Cardinals would sometimes drive yep. two hours uh, to yep. St. Louis. Now the very first time that you went to cover a Cardinals game, you go into the locker room, what happened? I stood there frozen and scared to death. Uh, I mean, I grew up a Cardinals fan. I was Columbia, Missouri was two hours away. Hannibal was two hours away. And, you know, being, it was, it was really amazing that, you know, I thought I asked for a press pass. I said, oh yeah, sure. You know, so I like, oh wow, I can actually be a yeah, you got two yeah, arms. Yeah. Come on in. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's uh, we don't let one arm riders in. Anyway, so you know, but I go in there. You know, there's, you know, Lou Brock and Gibson was still on the team, and these these are the guys. Like when I was really the first time I got into baseball was 1964, where they won the World Series over the Yankees. These are the guys I grew up worshiping and idolizing, and I'm here in the same locker room with them. And I think the first time I didn't talk to anybody. I was scared to death. And then finally, I kind of got my courage up and started talking to him and uh, interview, tried to, tried to interview him. So, yeah, that was, uh, you know, it, it was a weird thing because, I mean, you know, it wasn't like I was a 23 or 24-year-old. I mean, I was like just out of high school and here I was in the Cardinal locker room. So, that was, um, it was a strange. It was like being in a classroom, well, I, right? I yeah. mean, you're learning from the other reporters. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I was that. I was just like, can I ask Lou Brock a question? Oh my God! You know, I mean, it's like, I, I, and I was actually there one time. I think it was, I guess it was, um, must have been seventy three. It was. The, I went to a Cardinals Mets game and it went it went in the Mets locker room because the Mets won. Willie Mays was there. I was standing like right next to Willie Mays, uh -huh. next to Felix Beyond. Right. But he, yeah, here I was with. I was like, you know, like I mean, I wasn't. You know, I w he wasn't a cardinal, but it was Willie Mays, for God's sake. And I was standing there. I didn't ask him anything, but it was just like, I I, I don't know if any of the players noticed or paid any attention, but they must have said, what the hell is this guy doing in here? I mean, come on. Well, you had two arms, but you were mute. Exactly. Yeah, I was scared. <laughs> I was totally intimidated. Well, I got to say that I grew up in the Cincinnati area yeah. when I started in the business in the late 80s going into Riverfront Stadium and the manager's Pete Rose. And I used to have a Pete Rose poster on my yeah, wall as a exactly. child. And I'm asking Pete uh, for the daily double. I mean, <laughs> actually asking for the pitch and rotation. Uh, it was a little yeah. strange and you had to get used to that. Uh, and But you did. I mean, you, yeah. you learned how to do your craft. You learned how to interview. You learned how to develop sources. You went on to cover 26 Final Fours, 14 college national title games in football. Um, and, you know, but prior to that time of 
covering college football as a writer, you actually spent a few years on the desk. You're right. Uh, as an yeah. assistant sports editor at some places, uh, you were in Arizona, Atlanta, the Dallas Morning News, designing pages, editing stories. What did that experience do for you as a writer when you turned to writing full-time? Yeah, and I mean, I, I'm not being, uh, I'm not trying to be humble here, Todd, but I mean, I, as a writer, I always thought of myself just as a uh, as a craftsman, not an artist. But I think being on the desk, first of all, it really showed me the inner more of the inner work. Is particularly when I in Arizona was the first time I'd worked at a, uh, a morning paper, so I was in there at night. The deadlines, I mean, there's deadlines at afternoon papers, but deadlines for morning papers a little bit different. Uh, there's a little uh-huh. bit more pressure. So I learned a lot about putting pages out and, and screaming at writers for missing deadline and putting me under even more pressure. A lot of what I learned was understanding uh, when I got out to be a writer was understanding what the desk was going through with, uh, you know, there you weren't the only writer filing on deadline. You know, there, uh, right. there are other writers coming in with stories and, you know, it's a little bit like an air traffic controller where you're saying, oh, you know, okay, well, oh, this game went extra innings. Okay, well, what are we going to do now? Or, you know, like when Villanova beats Georgetown in the national championship game, you got to maybe rip up the front page for what you thought you were going to do and say, this is the one of the biggest stories in college basketball history. How are you going to display that? Right. And so that was a, a lot of what I learned as far as, you know, just kind of the inner workings of a new, I mean, I knew about headlines and pictures and layouts and all that kind of stuff. But I think when you're in there, particularly at night, when you're the guy that's kind of in charge of the section, you know, you, you kind of understand how this all works. So when I got out as a writer, we we always used to have the handcuff there where there'd be a lot of editors that didn't hadn't been out writing uh-huh. uh, who would, it was like, well, why couldn't you have interviewed that guy before he shot his free throws to win the game? <laughs> I mean, ser- it was almost like that. It was just like, okay, right. we're going to handcuff you and take you into a locker room and let you stand around for 10 minutes. You know, it's like you, you've been there, you know, you're on deadline and they take 15 minutes to open the locker room. Right. You know, and you're sweating to get quotes. Right. And, you know, and, and the editor said, well, how come you were like, you were, it's like, did you want quotes in the story or not? And so it gave you a perspective. You understood right. the process. Exactly. You understood that people were bleeding at both ends of the yeah. process. In the newsroom and at the arena, you also, as an assistant sports editor at the Dallas Morning News from 1981 to 83, experienced a good old-fashioned newspaper war. Yeah. What was it like participating in a newspaper war? It, it was um, it was very interesting. I, in 1981, I was at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I, I had gotten to know one of our writers, Dan Barrero, who is now up in Minneapolis and has become a talk radio legend, Minnesota Radio Hall of Famer. He went to the, the morning news to cover the NFL. And at that time, he he was one of the first hires that Dave Smith, the sports editor, made. David. Legendary yes, Dave, Dave Smith. At the Boston Globe had um, like the, the World Series with the Reds in 75, or was it 75? Or, it was 75, the Red Sox-Reds World Series. Uh-huh. He turned sports coverage on their head. He sent 10 writers to the games to cover all the angles. And it was, it was revolutionary. And he got the morning news sports editor job. And the guy that was in overall charge of the morning news had been the executive editor at the AP. They hired him. 
And his goal was to beat the Times Herald with coverage of sports and business. And Dave Smith got carte blanche, got all the space he wanted, all the money he wanted, anybody to hire anybody, staff, do whatever he wanted. Oh, yeah. He was like, a, yeah. well, wasn't he a former Marine? Yes. He yeah. Was, yeah. And yeah. he right. was a tough, tough guy to work for. Just from, I mean, very demanding. I, I always said when I would lay out the paper and, you know, go through all the stress of getting everything together and it was a large section and you were just, you know, you were landing planes at LaGuardia and rush hour kind of stuff. And, uh-huh. you know, he would mark up the next paper every day with a grease pencil. And I, I always thought that, you know, with Dave... You get 99 out of 100 things done correctly, and he'd want to know about the 100 thing you screwed up, <laughs> really. And, and, and he wouldn't talk about the 99 things. And it was amazing what the morning news turned into under Dave Smith. I mean, the Sunday sports section would be 24 to 30 pages. And Think yes, about yeah, that. That's, that. 30 that, pages that, of sports and that coverage. Is what, now, today, and we, we live in Dallas, and we subscribe to, to the morning news. There are many days when the regular sports section is six to eight pages. Back then, if we had a less than a 20-page daily section, it was like, oh, we don't have enough space for all this stuff because we they covered everything. At the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles, they sent 24 writers to cover the Olympics. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was, you know, I, I, it, it, seriously. I remember one time being in Dallas covering probably the NCAA tournament, and I picked up the Dallas Morning News, and I counted – 14 different datelines yes. in the sports section. And I'm not talking datelines from Texas. No. I'm talking around the globe. So this was the height of newspapers with revenue, with staff, yes. resources, ambition. It was a real meat grinder of a fight, right? Yeah, it was It was crazy. Um, you know, it, it was the height of newspapering. Well, the height of the newspaper war and era was also the time that you eventually switched over into full-time writing. So you moved over to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram in 1983 as an assistant sports editor. Right. In 1986, the Final Four is coming to Dallas, and you're still a desk guy. Their new sports editor, Bruce Raven, comes to you and says, we want you to start writing about college basketball, national college basketball. Right. Why did you decide to make that switch then? Well, uh, uh, he, he was the boss and he asked me. <laughs> so, I, you know, it wasn't so much my choice. Uh, I, I had worked with Bruce at the Morning News. He had been an assistant sports editor there uh, when I worked there. They brought in Rabin to say, look, we want to compete with the other two papers. And right. they, so they gave him more money and, and space, that kind of stuff. Actually, in... I asked Bruce about this years later, but I actually thought that Bruce didn't want me to be an assistant sports editor anymore. And so that's why he made me the college basketball writer. (laughs) Oh, you thought you were being demoted, huh? I loved college basketball. I'd really gotten into it. Um, And and he knew that. And um, I kind of said, well, okay, if if that's what you want. But yeah, Bruce, you know, and, and he was serious. He sent me everywhere almost. I was traveling like every other day, it seemed like, starting with basketball season. Okay, so let's let's think about this. You start, you go from going into the office every night. Yep. And in the fall of 85, you switch to become the National College basketball writer. What were the next five months like until the Final Four was held in Dallas in March of 86? It was a complete blur. Here I was, you know, all of a sudden I'm walking into Madison Square Garden. You know, this little kid from Columbia, Missouri, basically it's like, 
and just going all over the place. I spent a week in uh, Tobacco Road. He wanted me to do a big story because, you know, North Carolina had won it in 82, then North Carolina State in 83, and here Krzyzewski's Duke team was one of the best in the country. Uh-huh. Uh, the Dean Dome had his first game where it was Duke versus North Carolina. I was able to cover that game, and, they, you know, you want, you know. So I was just, and I didn't have any idea what I was doing as far as covering a beat. I just, he say, okay, we want two notes columns a week. Okay, well, whatever. And I throw stuff together. And, and he, he planned out most of my schedule. For five months, you were pretty much just traveling over the country, right? Yeah, it was, it was amazing. I really had never traveled that much. I learned about American Miles and Marriott points. Oh, yes. Which, you know, I mean, eventually, a couple of years later, my wife and I, Kind of had our uh, second honeymoon and went to Maui thanks to American and Marriott points. So there was there was a couple of perks, but I it, Bruce was great at scheduling and looking ahead and saying, "Well, here's we probably need to go to this game, and when you make this trip, uh, either talk to somebody there for a feature or figure out." You know, I mean, he was great at getting the most bang for the buck uh, as far as trips are concerned. But that season was just, I mean, I remember we got to the final four and. And even that was the the first weekend I was in uh, North Carolina. There were first and second round regionals in uh, Greensboro. Greensboro and Charlotte, uh-huh. which are like three hours from each other. And they were Thursday, Saturday, Friday, Sunday. So Bruce's great idea was, well, just drive back and forth and cover them all. Sure, so, I mean, why not? So like it was that's uh, eight, 12, uh, 14 games in four days, you know, and uh, it's like, okay, you know, and I got done with that. He, he actually, he actually gave me a break. I didn't cover regional final. We had other riders that did go do stuff, but, right. he, uh, and then I get to the final four and, um, you know, I mean, I was just, I was toast. And I You're was on still fumes. Like, I think you said you were, you had gone to like 27 cities or. Yeah. I, in the first month. crazy. Like at the, at the end of November. I mean, he even had me, like I, he helped me. Uh, I had one basketball trip where the Cowboys were playing at, at the Bengals in Cincinnati. And he said, well, that's Sunday. Why don't you go help help us cover the Cowboys? Sure, Bruce, whatever, you know. I, uh, You're like the special forces. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, and we, you know, it wasn't related to basketball, but I covered a Patriots Raiders playoff game in L.A. where that was just, I mean, he, that's what we were covering everything. And it's like, okay, this is a playoff game. Uh, we don't have anybody to cover it. Wendell, you know, book right. a flight and go. And, uh so, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, the championship game was, you know, quite something, uh, Louisville-Duke. Right. Louisville won with uh, freshman Purvis Ellison. Yeah. The star. And, never nervous Purvis. Yeah. I think he had like 25 points, 11 rebounds. Yeah. And it was such a shocking thing, right, to see a freshman yes. do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was back in the days when that wasn't, yeah. I think uh, there was a guy back in 1944 for Utah that was the most outstanding player, and, and Purvis was the first, that was the, next one to do that. So it was just unheard of. And of course, for a long time, freshmen were ineligible. But, uh, and, you know, you, you, when you're on deadline, the main thing is getting your lead. You know, wh- you know, you want something that's going to grab somebody. Uh-huh. And, you know, I was like, I, I was like, and I, something I came up with, uh, I'm not exactly a biblical scholar, but I came up with, and a child shall lead them. Uh-huh. Nice. And, and the next day, uh, I think it was somebody from the, oh, Dave, I think Dave Anderson from the New York Times was there covering uh, the Final Four as a columnist. And that was his lead. And I, I didn't plagiarize him because I, you know, it's not like I wrote a second day story with that. But 
I remember I got a note, note from Bruce saying, yep, yeah, it's pretty pretty good lead. Look what Dave Anderson wrote. Hey, you made it. Yeah. So I was like, well, you know, I was, you know, I was like, that's one. You know? <laughs> right? I think you covered 343 NCAA tournament games. That's amazing. What was March like for you as a sports writer? Again, it was hectic, but as the years went by, I got, it was always kind of a, a challenge to, and you may get to this in a minute, but in, in for the first 10 years of covering March Madness, that's basically what I did. And then 1994, they added National College Football to my uh, list of beats because uh-huh. I had written about a lot of NCAA stuff in the offseason from college basketball and had gotten into all the... Right. You know, the uh, Prop 48 stuff and uh, Title IX and all those issues. And they said, well, you're getting all this NCAA stuff. Why don't you just do college football, too? And, oh, sure, why not? So Let's have Wendell do it. He'll do anything. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Let, let, Mike, <laughs> let Mikey try it. Mikey, lead anything. <laughs> Google that commercial, kids. Anyway, so I would, uh, you know, I'd, you know that, that meant I'd start in July and end in uh, early April. But for me, March Madness was a challenge because I, I got to the point where I wanted to I wanted to figure out a way to get as much coverage as we could as cheaply as we could because one of the challenges of the NCAA tournament, particularly, you know, the first weekend, you don't see the bracket until CBS lets you see it, you know, Sunday evening at five or six o'clock. Right. And then you say, oh, look at this region. Oh, well, this, you know, uh, maybe TCU has made uh, a tournament. We got to send somebody there. And if it's a Thursday game, you pretty much have to travel Tuesday to get there for Wednesday's news conferences. Right. Which means Sunday night, you got to try to find flights. And it's usually during spring break. So if there's a, a tournament in Denver, uh-huh. first round, or in Florida, good luck finding a flight. Because right. they're yeah, all Selection good. Sunday was one of the craziest yeah. days yeah. of the year for anybody covering that. So I always tried to plan ahead and look at uh, and since Bruce had taught me well about, oh, you can cover two sites in a weekend in the first round, I would try right. to look at places and say, well, you know, there's a good chance this team might get sent here, so maybe we can, you know, I can piggyback and do two, um, which involved a lot of, usually involved driving if it was in three to four hours of each other and there were thir- Thursday. Yeah, it was just like being on a wagon train. Exactly. I just drive back and forth and, you know. You're just filing. Yep, and so, yeah, and writing stories. So that was the challenge to me was trying to plan it out. I mean, you knew where the Final Four was. You could book that. That was fine. Yeah, you knew how you were going to get to Oz eventually. You just didn't know where the yellow brick road was going to take you. And the early rounds, you know, was just trying to, you know, hopefully you got lucky and got somewhere where there's some good games. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, you certainly did get to some good games. When you think about those years, the first one that leaps to mind always for anybody who covered college basketball is the 92 East Regional Final, Duke versus Kentucky. Yep. Often called the greatest college basketball team ever, Christian Leitner with the last second shot after the full court pass from Grand Hill 
in overtime. Where were you sitting that night in Philadelphia? Uh, I was uh, probably second row of press row beyond the end, beyond the baseline, and Leitner was down there. So if I'd have had my binoculars, I'd have been in great shape. But I, I was about as far away on press row from Leitner as you could be. And that was one of those games where it was over, and, you know, it's the greatest, craziest game you ever covered. And you sit there, and I mean, I was just like, how it, how, how I don't know how to write this. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know what to say. Because, I mean, could, it was a game that had two game-winning shots. Kentucky scores with 2.1 seconds on a great drive uh, for the, to take the lead, and then Leitner kills them with his shot. So you, you had, in, in the space of just over two seconds, you had two game-winning shots. I mean, right. and, and Kentucky was a great story because they had been, shamed by the NCAA and Petito would come in and you had all these guys that nobody wanted playing on this team. And it was just a fantastic game oh, from yeah, start to finish. Yeah, it they, wasn't they, just the end, right? No, so oh, as they, the game was unfolding, did you grasp that this was not a normal day? Yeah. I mean, I knew it was, you know, I'm sitting there, you know, this is the previous year. Actually, the pre, you know, I mean, I'd seen Duke get run out of the gym by UNLV in 1990, then come back and upset him in the semifinals the next year, which, again, an unbelievably great game that nobody thought right. Duke had a chance to win. And here they are trying to become the first repeat since UCLA. Right. Uh, and I had written during the season, they're not going to do it. There's You got six games of 40 minutes. There's going to be a five-minute stretch where you're not going to have it. Right. Again, sometimes, you know, when, you, when you've seen the replay of the play a hundred times, it, it's easy. But when you're sitting there watching it live, I mean, I didn't, you know, I say, here's Grant Hill taking the pass out of bounds. You know, he's Calvin Hill's son. You know, okay, he's a great sophomore. It's like, well, okay, well, you know, I, I didn't look at whether or not guarding the inbounder, which a lot of people criticize Patino for. And, I, you know, it's like, what are they, I guess they're going to try to get the ball to Leitner, but I— Again, it's just like, I think honestly at the time, I was just like, I was kind of blanking out, not really. I was just kind of watching what's going to happen. I didn't analyze it. And it's like, oh my God, he hit the shot. I mean, it, it was so, you know, one of those things where something happens in the blink of an eye and you've blinked and you're kind of like, I don't know if I, what happened? What was it like in the arena at that moment? Oh, just, it was bedlam. It was, you know, I mean, people were going crazy. I'm, I, and another thing that I didn't realize in later, um, there's this great shot that uh, from CVS right after um, Leitner's shot, which I think em embellishes and shows what March Madness is about. Thomas Hill, one of Duke's starters, was not on the floor for the shot. He, you know, but uh -huh. and there's a, a a picture of him on the sideline, and he's like this, and it, yeah, it, it's holding like, his head in disbelief. And, and yeah. it, but it's like they lost. I mean, it's almost like he's in tears from that one quick half-second shot of him. You know, he he can't believe they made the shot, but it's almost like he, if you just saw that, you'd say, well, that guy's team's team lost. Where did you go for the postgame? I went to the press conferences. I went to the Duke locker room, um, you know, and tried to get what I, you know, what I could. And I was, again, I mean, I've talked out. I'm being totally honest. I mean, I've been doing it for uh, a while, covering college basketball. I honestly didn't know what to do. I, I was like, I, I don't know how I'm going to. I remember sitting in the press room, looking at my laptop, and I asked the desk, I said, can I do a little sidebar in addition to my game story because I wanted to cover as much as I could. And I was just sitting there thinking, I don't know where to start. I don't know what I'm going to. And the funny thing was, 
I went back, I've gone back and read my story. It wasn't that bad. But, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, Pat Forty was there. Rick Bozich was there because they were covering Kentucky guys that I'd gotten to know. And all these great writers at Hoops Weiss were there. And I was kind of looking around. I said, I wonder what the heck they're going to write. And I'm, and I, you know, I'm not being humble or modest. I was really like, man, I'm like, okay, uh, I'll try. But it was like, how do I make I, sense I, of this? I, right. I felt right. the pressure of trying to have a story as good as the game, which, you know, whatever. Well, as a native of Kentucky, I can attest that um, it was <laughs> yeah. one of the most crushing losses for that yes, state. Absolutely. And the very next day, you go from sitting courtside for that loss in Philly to you are in Lexington, Kentucky yep. the yep. next day <clears throat> to cover the Fab Five versus Ohio State in a regional final. Yes. What, what was it like in Lexington the very next day when you got to town? You know, I, I didn't, yeah, I flew from, uh, I, that's one of my trips that I had planned to say, okay, I can fly from Philly to Cincinnati fairly cheaply and then drive to Lexington. Right. But I was up late. I remember getting in a cab with the Syracuse athletic director who was on the committee the morning after the game. He was. We were both going to the airport from the same hotel. It was like I was up at like 5 a.m. I probably got three hours sleep. Uh, you know, I got to Cincinnati, checked into my hotel room. I took a nap. I was, just, you know, I was just trying again. I was like out of gas trying to get there. I don't remember what the feeling was as far as Lexington, and I was more. I had to do a Final Four preview for the paper for Monday in addition to covering. You were just and, trying to survive in advance. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, <laughs> Michigan, Michigan, Ohio State was a hell of a game. You, you know, here's two teams from the same conference. It was the Fab Five as freshmen. Um, you know, it was. Yeah, that know, was a great I, game, I, too. As, you know, yeah. so, you know, I, you know, I'm sitting there and it's like, oh, well, hey, another game. But it's like uh, yesterday's game was a little better. Uh, you know, but I think it went overtime too. So I think uh, two straight overtime games to go to the Final Four. That those are the things that when you get through covering March Madness, you look back on and say, you know. Yeah, I think sometimes in perspective, when you're years removed from it, you have a different take because in the moment, obviously, you're just trying to write. Yeah, you're trying to make sense of it and beat your deadline, and and it's that's all you're really kind of focusing on. I know myself when I look back on it, I have a little different thoughts about if i if I've witnessed a moment like that. Uh, you were there in nineteen eighty seven when Keith Smart hits his final shot to win the national title for Indiana. And this is only a couple of years into your tenure as a national college writer. Yeah, what was it like on a Monday night at the end of a championship game trying to write that story? Again, yeah, you know, and I did have a good view of that. It was down at my end of the floor. I was like in the second row of press row, so I was kind of elevated. And the interesting thing, the very first Final Four I ever went to when I was working in Dallas, the new uh, Final Four in 82 was in New Orleans. And I asked off for the weekend. I had a friend in New Orleans. I got tickets. Mm -hmm. That was uh, Michael Jordan against Georgetown. So you saw that. I saw that game. Yeah, but you didn't have to write that one. This no, time you got to no, write. No, I got, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, hey, I'm just a fan. But, you know, Jordan's shot was about 10 feet away from Smarts. And obviously it was Knights. Turned out to be his uh, uh, last national championship. Maybe I'll set you up for some Knight questions. But I remember going to that Final Four and knowing Knight's reputation with writers. And in the... Group press conferences, you know, where we're all sitting there in the audience and what, raising our hand to ask a question. Uh, I made damn sure that my questions for Bob Knight were practically written down. Because I, <laughs> I, I was not going to have him <laughs> chop me into little pieces about what a stupid question that right, was. Right, right, right. And it was, I felt like I was at a professor 
uh, professor's class um, for that. But yeah, that was, again, it was one of those things where, you know, it's like, oh, okay, championship game, final shot. Hoosiers had come out. Right. It was all there. The whole yeah, story yeah, was yeah. fabulous, it, it, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, there were, there were plenty of, as a writer, you want as many uh, options to go with. And then that game uh, provided quite a few. And I don't remember if my story was worth a damn, but it made deadline. <laughs> so you wrote down this question for night and you rehearsed it and you asked it, what kind of response did you get? It was actually pretty good. I, I don't, I, I want to say that I remember him at least saying, oh, that's a good question or whatever. But, you know, I was, <clears throat> I was prepared, you know, and as you well know, and I know this is kind of your motto, it's like uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. John that's Wooden. The, John Wooden. And I, I didn't pick that up early in my career, but I picked it up as I went along and saying, you know what? You need to be ready um, uh, for anything. And Plus, so, the yeah. week before, you were in Cincinnati for the <laughs> yeah, regional. Yeah, yeah that's when yeah, yeah. Indiana was playing LSU, and Bob Knight and Dale yeah, Brown, LSU yeah, coach, yeah. Were, were big enemies. And there was a moment there where you're sitting press row, and what did you see? I saw Knight, after a call, uh, slam the phone. That, you know, they had a phone at press row, believe it or not, an actual phone like this phone. Uh, I guess for the officials to call wherever or whatever. It was, it was a red phone. I don't know. Maybe it had something to do with the president. But anyway, the uh, <laughs> Knight was upset with a call and he was sitting, it was right in front of the, uh, you know, the members of the basketball committee get to sit at the official scores table. And I think the phone was right in front of one of those members of the committee. And Knight picked the handset of the phone up and slammed it down on the receiver and the phone jumped up <laughs> off the table. And, you know, and, you know, he didn't get a technical. And, you know, did, uh, LSU, which was a very underseeded, underrated team, and mm -hmm. in Indiana was one of the teams that are, I think they were probably a one seed, but they were favored to probably win the national championship. They barely beat LSU. And, you know, at that time, Dale Brand had the reputation. The previous year, he'd gone to the Final Four, I think, with an 11 seed. Mm -hmm. uh, right. And so, you know, he had this reputation of uh, messing teams up that were better than his team. And he was, and he was a very uh, adamant uh, enemy of Knight as far as his bullying techniques. Yeah, he used to just call Knight a bully, which was, yeah. you know, unheard of for another coach to say yeah. that type of thing. And you know, in all honesty, uh, you know, as it's turned out, as it turned out over the years, Dale Brown was right about that, I think. But uh, yeah, so that you know th that had kind of set the tone for the Final Four of you know. Uh, I mean, everybody, I mean, Knight previously had thrown the chair across the floor and had, you know, he had had a number of off, either on court or off court temper tantrums where he had become, you know, uh, terrible Bobby Knight. So, right. yeah, uh, that, that incident at the regional final was uh, a good precursor to that final four to Orleans. Well, 87 was kind of the height of his power. I mean, exactly. he won, that was his third national championship. Yep. Yep. He won, he, he took the U.S. to the gold medal in 84. Yep. Uh, he was the guy. This is only a couple years into the three-point shot, which he never yes. really adapted to. So he was rolling the game at that time. And so he was just always in the news and always copied for writers. Yep. And, you know, his last Final Four was in 92. Yep, uh, I was there. When, yep. when Duke repeated. Duke beats Indiana in the semifinals, uh, close game. Um, and, you know, it was famous for after that game. I mean, here's Krzyzewski 
He's already won a national championship, former Knight assistant. Played for Knight at Army. Played for Knight at Army. You know, he right. was a Coach Knight guy. And in the handshake line, uh, Knight gave him the drive-by. The handshake, it wasn't like stop and put your hand on the guy's shoulder saying, nice job, good luck in the championship game. It was just like handshake, keep going. He goes down to the end of the bench and one of the, he wasn't an assistant coach, but he, Knight knew him. And he, he spent more time chatting with that guy at the end of the bench than he had with Krzyzewski's former assistant. Right. And it was, it was just a virtual slap in the face to Krzyzewski. To me, it was like, my pupil is now the teacher, and I don't like it. Uh, grudge was uh, one of the things Knight did more than a lot of people. He did some nice things for some, for some people, but uh, he, he had a long list of grudges, and you just happened to end up on the list. Wendell, how did you take a guy like Knight when you were writing about college basketball and not let personal feelings impact what you were writing? What was the challenge of that? As it went on, um, I mean, in 87, uh, n not so much in 92. I mean, I didn't, you know, I, you know, if I'd have had an opportunity to write a column after the Duke-Indiana game in 92, I would have probably, you know, torched him. I remember when he got fired, you know, I wrote a column for the paper. And, you know, by that time, I had gotten to the point of realizing that this is a guy who was, he was basically a hypocrite because he what he demanded of his players, he couldn't do himself, which was control his temper. You know, he wanted his players to play perfect game, you know, and he, he got on them. You know, he was even angry at his son when he played for him if he made a mistake. I mean, you know, he was a guy that, you know, instead of being able to control his emotions like he expected his players to, he couldn't right. do it. And right. to me, that was the reason why... And I wrote that I said, here's the irony of Bob Knight, who at the, you know, um, one of the greatest coaches ever was that he didn't practice what he preached. Yeah. So, the, so I, it, I don't know if that was personal, but that at the time was like, yeah, I, I guess maybe I had more of an epiphany thinking, okay, this is what this guy is and you have to understand it. And this is why he doesn't coach at Indiana. I always thought Knight was just kind of representative of a certain era of a yes, coaching style. Exactly. He played yeah. basketball at Ohio State in the early 60s when yes. Woody Hayes was the football coach. Bob was from Ohio. He understood yep. the whole Woody Hayes thing. Um, and I just think in those days, you know, coaches could get away with that type of thing. Not to excuse it. No. It was just yep. different. Yeah. And um, it was just fascinating to see how that type of coach, not just Knight, but other guys of that ilk, could behave and be excused. You know, and that's looking back in a perspective now, years later, when things have changed. But it never ceased to be a fascinating topic for writers when they were there in the moment. Yeah, and, you know, the thing is, is that, I mean, uh, the world we live in now with uh, Twitter and social media and uh, whether or not it's a viral video or not. I mean, Woody Hayes punching the Clemson player went viral, uh, but it was only on TV. Right. Now, you know, you can imagine the uh, commotion that would have created in this modern day if, if it had been all over Twitter. I mean, he did <clears throat> lose his job over that. Right. And, uh, but, and again, you know, uh, the video doesn't lie. I mean, uh, Knight choking Neil Reed in practice was, again, one of the nails in the coffin for him that showed right. his Woody Hayes-type behavior toward one of his players, not to an opposing player, but one of his players, 
you know, in the time when he looked like he kicked his son on the bench, uh-huh. uh, those kind of things. And, you know, then he would make fun of it by bringing a whip to the regional final or the final yeah, four. There's such it, a it, long know. list of things that, yeah, you yeah. know, that counterbalanced the 900 wins and national championships yeah. and everything else. And, and again, you know, uh, Knight wasn't alone. There was a lot of coaches like that, yeah. you know. Jackie Sherrill had a bull castrated to try to, <laughs> to try to, uh, in front of his team to try to motivate them, right? So, yeah. hey, you had to be tough. Yeah. It's different. Can I tell a, a story about the bull castration? It's an editing story. Hey, we will take all stories about bull castration by Jackie this, Sherrill. It, Go for you, it. You had mentioned the, you know, I was at the uh, 92 regional final of Lexington and I was doing a final four preview also because that was the last game of the regional uh, Elite Eights. And, you know, I was kind of doing a little bullet notes thing. And Mississippi State, um, or maybe this was, this probably wasn't the right way. Anyway, Mississippi State had got to the Final Four. And um, so it wasn't in 92. I'm getting my dates mixed up because I'm old. But anyway, Mississippi State had (laughs) won and got to the Final Four. And Cheryl was the coach. And not too long, or not too long before that, he had done the thing where he had castrated the bull because they were getting ready to play Texas, the Longhorns, and he wanted to motivate his team. Right. So they were <laughs> going to be playing Syracuse in the regional or in the Final Four semifinals. It's, this is still one of my favorites. And um, so, you know, I was, you know, you tried to be a little, you know, smart alecky or snarky. So my little paragraph thing was, hey, you know, uh, well, so Texas A&M gets to play Syracuse and they were, uh, in Saturday's semifinal, you know, uh, no word that you know, whether, whether Jackie Sherrill is going to show up and castrate an orange. <laughs> Gee, you know, I, I see I, what you did there. But did the desk see what oh, you did there? No. no. <laughs> and, you know, this was after, I think it was, an, you know, it was the Sunday before the Final Four. I'd been covering, you know, two weekends of the tournament. I was worn out. I was finishing the Lexington. I was one of the last people in the press room. And so I'm getting ready. I'm packing stuff up. And back in those days before cell phones, you had a rule. Like before you were saying, okay, I'm done, you would call the office and say, has anybody got any questions for me? Did, yeah, you know, right. did I screw right. up something or did, you know, whatever. So I called the desk and said, hey, everything okay? And he said, oh, yeah, the guy that, you know, so-and-so wants to talk to you. So Uh-oh. I get him on the phone and he said, uh, Wendell, I, I, you can't castrate an orange. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, it's like, oh my God, it's like, I, 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 it was like, it's a good thing no one anybody had pressure. I wasn't yelling at him, but I, I got very animated saying, do you understand like irony or humor or you anything? You turned I mean, into Bob Knight. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't. I, I, and, and, and people that know me will be surprised. I didn't cuss. I didn't yell. You know, I. You just I, tried to explain that I, this I tried, is a play like, on words. The yes, Syracuse it, orange yeah, and your yeah yes it's, it's like yes I know you can't castrate an orange but do you understand and, and maybe he was thinking well people don't understand about the Jackie Sherrill reference but if you have to explain about him castrating the bull in Texas well you know that and it's like you can't <laughs> you know that ruins the joke you know it's like you can't you know I mean so what so it stayed in they they actually went with it but it was like a five minute conversation of my frustration and, you know, being worn out, tired, trying to say, you know, at, at some, at some points I would have just said, okay, fine, just take it out. You know, right. but I, you know, all right. So, well, you mentioned football. I mentioned football yeah. and you started covering national college football in 1994, which happened to be the same year you were president 
of the Basketball Writers Association yeah. of America. So you had a lot on your plate. Uh, you started covering college football the way you did basketball by traveling around to the big games. And just like in basketball, you got to see some amazing moments. Yep. Um, I think you're at the Nebraska-Missouri Flea Flicker. You're at the yep. USE Notre Dame Bush Push. Uh, Ohio State Miami for the national title. Um, you were also there for the Boise State Oklahoma <laughs> Fiesta Bowl. I was not there, but this involves a trash can, I do believe. Yeah. Please yeah. explain. I had gone in because Oklahoma is it's not one of our, our schools, basically, but Oklahoma was in the same conference, the Big 12. So it was like, you know, that, that was a school that the Star-Telegram paid attention to. We'd cover some of their home games based on whether it was important, that kind of thing. Told the editors, that I'm going to go out, cover the Fiesta Bowl. So I flew out that day. You know, nobody expected Boise State to hang with Oklahoma. It, it was right. it was Adrian Peterson's probably last game. He was That's a junior. That's right, yes. That was part of the reason to be there. And I was going to write a column about Adrian Peterson's career in addition to writing a game story. Because, as I said earlier, my if I went to the game and the paper was paying the money and I could possibly do it and they had the space, I said, look, I'm going to give you as much as I can on deadline. And so I could get a column done. I kind of sort of write it ahead of time and then kind of massage it and update it and I'll do a game story and you'll be so happy that I did all this. So, <laughs> you know, they get, you know, I was, uh, Oklahoma's a, uh, behind, they get an interception, touchdown return, they go ahead and, it, it, you know, and those, as you well know, Todd, most of the time with a college football game, particularly on deadline or at any time, with five minutes to go, they'd say, riders, you could an elevator to go down to the field so you would be on the field for the last couple of minutes. Right, which was a blessing and a curse because sometimes something would happen. Now, you, if they, it was a two touchdown game, you didn't worry about it. You knew right. the game, but but this particular game, yeah, something yeah, happened. Yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> it did. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, uh, hey, first of all, how's uh, Boise State's ahead in the elevator going down? They had the radio on. Oklahoma gets an interception return for a touchdown, goes ahead with like a minute ten to you know. Okay, Oklahoma's going to win. Okay, and I wanted right. to try to get Peterson on the field for a quick quote. So I had my laptop with me. I was going so I get down there, and then all of a sudden, Boise State does every play in their playbook and scores the touchdown. It goes overtime, you know. But anyway, I had to update my story. I had my laptop. I'm on the sideline, and you know, you have to have a flat surface for your laptop. You can't. I mean, you know, this. I wouldn't have done the story on a phone, but I didn't have enough. So I'm trying to. I find one of those flat top trash right. cans, and I sit my laptop down on it to uh -huh. try to work on updating my story. Bill Hancock, who now is <laughs> Bill Hancock, who is now in charge of the working uh, conditions. I love yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he remembers seeing me, you know, the he world. said, oh, that's, yeah, yeah. Bill Hancock's like, in charge of the world now, I believe. Yeah, well, exactly. And, you know, and he says, well, I wonder, I always remember seeing you, you know, try, working on your story on that trash can. And it's like, some people say, well, that's very appropriate that your story was done on a trash can. <laughs> but anyway, so, and then, you know, Boise State does. They so do while the Boise State is doing all these trick plays, you're typing on top of a trash can. Yeah. yeah. And then I get down to the end of the field. I got down to the end of the field where they do overtime. Peterson runs in a touchdown on the first play. And you think Oklahoma's going to win. Then Boise State ties it with another trick play. And then they go for two with the Statue of Liberty and the win it. And the guy that scores the touchdown proposes to his cheerleader girlfriend. And it's like, how much other things could happen in this game? So anyway, luckily the photo photography room, which is just off the uh, uh, tunnel going into the locker rooms, had 
Wi-Fi so I could go in there and finish right. all my stuff up and send my both my stories in. Did you take the trash can with you? No, no, no. I found a table in the photography room to work on. I did. I only used the trash can once. Have trash can, we'll travel. Yeah, yeah that's right. Okay. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, one of the things that I always envy the guys at this point, you know, internet was a big thing. The, the great thing that an internet guy has uh, over the newspaper deadline, you didn't really have a deadline. I mean, you know, right. you did want to get your story done, but because I go in the Boise State locker room, I was going to do a false story, and it's like, oh, I wish I could have had some of this stuff for my story because I think I think Brian Harson was the offensive coordinator at that time for Boise State, and we were talking to him, and he said, he said that stature look that was the last play we had. We didn't have anything left. We had nothing left in the we, arsenal. We had used we had used every you know <laughs> trick play, you know every special kind of play. That was the last thing we had. And it's like, okay, my story's already gone, and it's done. I would have loved to have had that, but you know, whatever. That's life. Well, I just love the fact that you found a trash can and you <laughs> improvised and were able to use it as a table to write. Uh, as someone who wrote many things that many people reminded me should have been thrown in a trash can. <laughs> yep. Um, thinking yes. of you typing on that trash can just brings a lot of joy to my yeah, life, that, Wendell. That, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the perfect uh, story for my career. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it does show uh, the fact that you could adapt, you could, you could find a way to get things done. And also, you know, you were always looking out for the other writers, the good of the other writers. You did it as president of the basketball writers that year, but you also did it in 1998 at a football game. Number two, Kansas State beats the defending champ, Nebraska. Kansas State coach Bill Snyder, at this great moment, probably the best win in Kansas State history, he decides he's not going to let the media talk to his quarterback, Michael Bishop, a Heisman Trophy candidate, right? Yes. Yeah, that was a huge story for, you know, I mean, I covered national college football, but the Big 12 was a big part of that. Right. And this was, you know, Kansas State had been awful, and Snyder had come in there and in a few years had turned it around. Here's Nebraska, the big bully of the Big 12, coming to Manhattan. Kansas State, I think, was maybe number one then or number two. Or, and uh, it was a big weekend for Kansas State and Manhattan, and they played a great game. Michael Bishop played a great game. They upset Nebraska. You know, places going nuts. It's, you know, whatever. They tear down the goalpost. And after the game, you know, it's like, well, it'd be nice to talk to Michael Bishop. But he had been off limits all season. You know, he, um, Snyder wasn't letting him talk to the media, which, okay, but it's like, this game? Come on, can we talk to him? Well, it turned out that Tim Layden of Sports Illustrated <clears throat> was great able reporter to talk. and writer at yeah, Sports oh, Illustrated. Great guy, yeah, but, and, yeah. And, you know, and it is, it's Sports Illustrated, which back then, folks, that was big. You know, right. it's SI.com right. now. It's a website. It's, you know, Sports Illustrated is no longer Sports Illustrated, but whatever. So Layden gets a chance to talk because Bishop was a Heisman Trophy candidate. He was one of the finalists that went to New York. He didn't win it. But so Layden, I find out Layden got to talk to him. I don't know, somebody, maybe Dennis Dodd or some other writer friend of mine said, you know, that, you know, Layden got to talk to Bishop. And I was like, and one thing my wife will tell me that I am a Don Quixote as far as going after windmills, and I get angry about little things and say, well, I'm going to stand for this. You know, yeah, you're all about fairness here, Wendell. Well, I was just like, you know, this isn't right. You right, know, if you, right. you know, if, if you don't want to talk to the media, fine. But this is your, your playing favorite. So I, I type up a letter 
<clears throat> and I faxed it because it was 1998. <laughs> oh, I love it. The fax machine. Well, you know, I mean, it was an email. It was, I mean, you know, I, so I faxed him, you know, faxed a letter to the football office. Dear right. Snyder, I, I, you know, I don't think it's fair or correct that you allowed Bishop to talk to Sports Illustrated when the other writers couldn't talk to him. Huh. I just don't think, you know, where? About 30 minutes later, the phone in my home office rings. Pick it up. I have Coach Schneider on the line for you. Uh -oh. Like, oh, boy. Here yeah. we go. Yeah. I'm going to get yelled at. And he came on and said, Wendell, I got your, got your letter. You were right. I'm sorry. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Really? Uh, yeah. Yeah. He apologized and said, uh, I'm going to make sure Michael talks to the media the rest of the season. And it's funny. Ever since then, you know, we didn't have a lot of interactions. Uh -huh. But... You know, and Snyder had this reputation of being a guy who was, you know, I mean, he'd control the type of butter that his team would have for a pregame meal. They had one <laughs> pat of butter. Seriously. Seriously. I mean, he controlled everything. I wish I had him in charge of my diet. <laughs> well, yeah. But, I mean, he was. He, and that's one of the reasons K-State got to be what, where K-State was, because he was saying, this is how we're going to do it. But he was, you know, and I don't like to get into the idea of being friends with coaches or whatever, because you really aren't friends. Right, but ever since then, he was so nice and cordial with me. Honestly, not because hey, I want you to write a story about so and so, but you know, he'd say, "Hey, Wendell, how you doing?" Everything, you know, we'd have a brief but nice conversation. Right, and and I always I respected him for the fact that you know, rather than uh, being what most coaches would have done and either ignored what I said or call me up and say, "How dare you tell me how to run my program." He admitted that he had made a mistake in this case and was going to correct it. And, you know, that was like, yeah, you know, okay, once again, that's two. <laughs> you know, I mean, so that's as much a Bill Snyder story as it is one of my stories. Well, I think that's really interesting that somebody would acknowledge that they were wrong. Yeah. When it's not typical for a coach to acknowledge that they're exactly. wrong to the and, media. And, you know, and I didn't write a story about it. Right. You know, I didn't say, oh, well, here's what happened with me and Bill Snyder, which... Again, in this day and age, I think a lot of people might have blogged about it or whatever, but I didn't, I didn't consider that a story to write, and I didn't particularly consider it a victory or whatever. Well, I think it shows you the kind of working relationship you could have because of the access that you had in those days, right? Yes, that is true, that I was able to get through to Snyder. I mean, you know, I, you know these days, I mean, I guess you could still send a fax to a coach, but... You know, I, I still think even if you send an email, it's going to probably go through an SID. Right. And unless you're congratulating him on a victory or his retirement or career, that coach is never going to see that if it's critical. Well, it also shows, too, Wendell, so much about what you are about as a well-respected reporter. You know, just um, thoroughness, looking out for what you thought was right or wrong, looking out for other writers. And you did that for so many years, you know, so productive cranked them out for many, many years, and uh, you were always there. I knew if I was at a game and it was a big game, that Wendell Barnhouse was going to be there. And it was always good to chat with you and, uh, and see you. Same here. And I really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. We've had some different types of stories. I don't know if we've ever talked about castrating an orange <laughs> well, on this show, but uh, that's, that's already one of my favorites. I like to break new, new territory, new ground. You know, it's like, uh, I don't know how many podcasts out there in the world do discuss a orange <laughs> castration. I don't know if that would be in the uh, 
fruit category or the medical category? Uh, maybe both. I don't know. Well, I think we all need some medical attention at this point. So, <laughs> you know, I appreciate this. Wendell, it's been a real treasure to spend time again and reconnect. And uh, thank you so much for sharing the stories that you have shared with us today and uh, wish you all the best. Todd, I appreciate it. Same to you. And uh, this, these podcasts you're doing, I've seen the list of people you had. This is a tremendous collection of oral histories, basically, as far as sports writing is concerned. So uh, kudos to you for doing this. And I hope that it gets preserved in a number of places for anybody that wants to learn about how the business used to be. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. I'm Coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along the planted runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you.